What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And welcome to Friday. Happy Veterans Day weekend. And if for you that means an extra day off, enjoy. It is called the Communion with Dr. David Anders. I'm Ace McKay in for Tom Price, who we're continuing to pray for. He's not been feeling well the last couple of weeks, but uh, hopefully we'll be bouncing back next week. Uh, in the meantime, we are here to take your questions. So you can give us a call. Let's fill up the phone lines at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288. 288-EWTN, and of course, uh, you can leave your comments on Facebook and YouTube, and Jeff Burson, our social media manager, will get those to us, and ctc at EWTN.com is for your emails. As always, helping to answer your question, Dr. David Anders, how are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks. How about you? I'm good. I, I have to put you on the spot and ask you about the new Beatles song. You spent some time with it at this point. I sent it to you just... Yeah, so I haven't listened to it like really carefully okay. in depth. I've listened to it twice. <laughs> right. And, you know, I think they did the best with what they had. I mean, they had Lennon's vocals and the melody that he composed, and they had to work around that. The instrumentation is fine. Uh, You know, the orchestration is fine. You know, the melody is fine. But it it was not the finest piece of of Beatle work that I've ever encountered. But, you know, given what they had, I was kind of impressed and pleased like everybody else. If it gets people to go back and listen to all the original stuff, then it was worth releasing. That's right. My two favorite Beatles songs are Here Comes the Sun and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Okay. Minus help, and I don't have any other than that other than Rubber Soul as a whole. Okay. I feel like you can't listen to that one in parts, but uh, for those who need a Beatle lesson, that's always a good part, a good place to start. As we answer your questions today, again, 833-288-3986. Coming in email, Sue wants to know, all world religions seem to have common threads, including teachings about how the world came to be and how faith directs uh, the lives of believers. How do we know that? How do we know that Christianity and specifically Catholicism is the true religion? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So, so the, uh, the the Catholic position is first of all that when you see common elements in other religious traditions, that this is what you would expect. This is a good thing. This is not in any way threatening to the unique claims of Catholicism because we teach, the Catholic Church teaches, that humanity is one family that with a common origin and a common human nature. And so it stands to reason that since we have the same spiritual constitution, we have the same spiritual aspirations, the same spiritual needs, and those would give vent to, to, to myths, stories, laws, principles, doctrines, uh, that would have a significant amount of overlap. So there's nothing threatening about that commonality from a Catholic point of view. Um, the, the uniqueness of Catholicism is really tied to the person of Jesus Christ, who you know is not someone from mythic time, but is uh, an individual that lived in, in, in human history on an identifiable timeline that founded a visible institution, namely the Catholic Church, that's continuous to this very day, and the motives of credibility in the Catholic faith are things like the fulfillment of prophecy and the miracle of the saints and uh, the holiness of the saints and the tremendous positive impact that the Catholic faith has had on individual lives and whole civilizations for 2,000 years. 
Excellent. Thanks, Sue, for your email. Eric is on YouTube and says, on a couple of recent shows, you said, you've said each Mass is a distinct offering. If Jesus, our high priest, is outside of time, is it fair to say that our perspective uh, each is distinct, but from God, it isn't? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So this outside of time business, uh, as applied to the Mass, is a category mistake in my judgment. So we can talk about the divine nature being outside of time, to be sure. Um, God, in, in the sense of the divine nature, is eternal and unchanging. Uh, but the humanity of Christ, uh, which is hypostatically joined to his divinity, the humanity of Christ is temporal, right? I mean, Jesus Jesus grew. He was born as an infant. He, he, he grew up. He lived. He died. He rose again. I mean, these are all temporal changes. These are all temporal events. And the mode of Christ's presence in the Eucharist is not atemporal. It is, in fact, temporal. And so the, the Christ who becomes present in the Blessed Sacrament is Christ as he is in his proper person. And where I'm sitting right now, that'd be at, you know, November the 10th at 1.05 p.m. Central. And that, that's the Jesus who's present. Um, there's a, an article in St. Thomas's Summa Theologica where he asks the rhetorical question, what would have happened if the apostles had celebrated Mass when Jesus was in the tomb. And they didn't, of course, but they could have. And Thomas's answer is, well, you would have had the body and blood and divinity of Christ, but not his human soul. Because at that moment, the human soul of Christ was separated from his body and blood because he was dead. We rose again and reunited, of course. That underscores the, the, the sort of temporal realism of Jesus's, of Jesus's presence. So, um, and then the, the fact that God is able to see reality in a single permanent instant doesn't mean that God takes no account of temporal succession. I mean, God, after all, is who made the temporal world with the uh, series of, of uh, temporal causes and effects that we experience, and that's all part of the divine plan. So, so uh, I, I, don't, I, I think the question uh, kind of misses the point. No, th- there, there are distinct human acts, um, that stand in a different temporal relation to one another, and they, they have their integrity as distinct human acts. Okay. We appreciate the question, Eric. Again, if you're on YouTube or Facebook, remember to leave your comments in the comment box, and we will get those on. Let's uh, jump onto the lines today. Bern- Bernardo in Houston, Texas, listening to Guadalupe Radio Network. Uh, thanks for calling Call to Communion. What's your question for Dr. Anders? Hi. Uh, my question was, uh, my parish priest said that presumption is a sin against the Holy Ghost. Does that mean that if you commit it, you're going to go to uh, hell? Because our Lord says that um, a sin against the Holy Ghost won't be forgiven in this world or the next. Thank, Thank you. you. I really appreciate the question. No, that's not what it means. So um, pr- presumption would be the, the, the sin of presuming that I am due eternal life, and so that I can kind of kick my heels up and take it easy from here on out. Now, obviously, if you remain in the state of presumption and you think, well, I don't really have to cooperate with grace, there's nothing I have to do, I've got this thing, you know, tucked away and in the bag, well, you know, that's that's going to impede you from coming to repentance before you die, and that would be a problem. Uh, but um, uh, the, only, the only unforgivable sin in Catholic teaching is that sin of final impenitence, that unwillingness to come to repentance uh, uh, even, even before death. So presumption could lead to that. But of course, it can be also be rectified. You could, you could be, we could have presumption, and then you could suddenly be cut to the quick and realize, oh my, I, you know, I need to repent, and then you could change. 
All right, Bernardo, we hope that helps. Thanks so much for listening in Houston. As we continue our Veterans Day weekend together, we, of course, want to hear from you. So 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. More with Call to Communion coming up. You made it to Friday, and you're listening to Call to Communion on EWTN Radio with Dr. David Anders. As we take your calls, we do have a line open for you at 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. If you're outside North America, remember to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985, and we will do our best to get you on today. Before we go back to the phones, we do want to let you know in time for Christmas, Behold the Lamb of God, the three-day devotional candle, is actually designed to burn for three days. So if you're looking for that, uh, I know candles are a big deal in my house, so this would be something uh, you may want to consider as a gift this year. It's in a sturdy glass holder. Uh, It has the adoration of shepherds on one side, which is uh, based on an Italian painting from Lorenzo Lotto, and then John 129 on the backside, uh, which is Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if you want that in time for Christmas or just for your own, you can do that through our EWTNRC.com website. Remember, free standard shipping is available and online order $75 or more. You get that when you use the uh, code free at checkout. So let's jump over back to the phones as we take your calls this afternoon. Uh, again, 833-288-EWTN. Checking in with James, listening on Sirius XM in Memphis, Tennessee. James, what's your question for Dr. Anders? Hey, Dr. Anders. Good afternoon. Thanks again for, for taking my call. So I really enjoy all of your uh, explanations and and how you're able to characterize uh, people's uh, questions, especially in related to Scripture. And I've listened to you explain many different things as people call and bring up maybe some textual contradictions they find in the New Testament, or they'll bring up questions and say, hey, in Genesis, it talks about the Word being created in seven days, and people will say, how is that possible? That's only seven 24-hour periods, and you'll have a good explanation for that. So what I'm asking for is, if you could just take just a couple minutes, and if you were to be able to frame someone's mindset as they read the Bible for the first time, knowing that they're going to come across things that don't make sense uh, in the in a maybe fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible, how how would you frame that for them? What how would you uh, tee that up? Yeah, I appreciate it. I'd say that the Bible is the record of the journey of the people of God in their relationship with God. And and so it it gives voice to all of the varied experiences and sometimes the varied thoughts and categories that emerge in that journey. Uh, it's very much a human product. The Church teaches that it's a divine product, but it is every bit as much a human product. And, and the, the, the Bible itself is self-critical. So later passages of the text will look back at earlier passages of the text and, uh, and offer correction. Now, it doesn't mean that the whole thing's not inspired, right? This is the way biblical revelation unfolds. I'll give you some examples. Chiefly, the person of Jesus Christ himself uh, seems to relativize some of the Mosaic law. So the book of Deuteronomy, for example, speaks in an unqualified way about the right of men to divorce their wives. Jesus just flat contradicts that, says, no, you can't divorce your wife. And when asked by the Pharisees, well, how can you say that, since the law of Moses says otherwise? And Jesus' response is to say, well, Moses wrote that because of the hardness of your heart. 
but it wasn't God's intent from the beginning. You go back and look at Deuteronomy. It doesn't say anything about Moses making a prudential judgment out of out of condescension to human stubbornness. But that's the way Jesus interprets it. He he brings a higher principle, namely the principle of charity and dignity of the human person, to bear on the expertise of, of the text, to bear on the interpretation of the text in a way that would seem to relativize the literal sense. And so this is what we call development. If you read the book of Job, Job seems to contradict one of the central messages of the book of Deuteronomy, which is that you obey the law and follow God and your temporal life will go well. That seems to be the straightforward promise of Deuteronomy. And the whole book of Job seems to undercut that because Job is good and he's righteous and there's no one more righteous than Job. And yet his experience is quite contrary to that. Um, and the the only way you can bring all of this into harmonization, uh, now here, here's the wrong way to do that. Uh, when I grew up in a sort of semi-fundamentalist uh, uh, church family and, and w- was trained to think in those terms, the idea was that if you really knew what the text says, you could construct kind of systematic theology out of all the disparate propositions of Scripture. They could be lined up in a way that they would not be made to contradict. And the idea was that they were all infallible, they were all inerrant, they were all true in a kind of level way, and you just had to move the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle around to make them cohere into a logical system. Uh, The Bible as the data set for a systematic theology textbook, in other words. And I think that's the wrong way to make them cohere. It's not the way the Catholic Church historically has done it, um, because the texts don't present themselves as serving that function or or being that kind of witness. Um, Rather, the coherence comes from the the, the temporal trajectory, if you will, of, of development towards the person of Jesus, who is the fullness of divine revelation and who clarifies uh, definitively the meaning of the whole. And so the the individual parts are read within the context of the whole canon, pointing ultimately to the person of Jesus. And sometimes that requires some significant rethinking of earlier passages. And this is what St. Paul does, clearly, when he allegorizes so much of the Old Testament and finds Christ uh, written through the pages of, of narrative that don't seem to speak of him explicitly. Um, and uh, St. Augustine does this, for example, when he reads the Psalms, and he finds in the voice of the psalmist a typological in, uh, uh, anticipation of the sufferings of Christ. And so Jesus is always the criteria, the criterion, and Christ's ethic is always the highest uh, criterion. St. Augustine said, any interpretation is good so long as it leads you ultimately to charity. James, we hope that helps. Thanks so much for uh, calling, listening in Memphis today. Uh, staying in Tennessee today, listening in Chattanooga and uh, watching us actually on YouTube. Maria, uh, thanks for calling. Called the communion with Dr. David Andrews. What's your question? Hi, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming Catholic, but I'm very concerned because the Pope, is, I, my friend told me that the Pope is letting people that are sodomites, that practice sodomy, become, um, I guess, baptized or, or godparents, and and it just seems like the Catholic Church is becoming um, not evil, but not the Church. I understand that, but why is this kind of stuff even being considered? I know what the Bible says about um, homosexuality is a grave sin, so is, is this going to happen to the Church? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the official statement of the Church's 
doctrine that is to be presented to people joining the church is unambiguous about the moral status of homosexual relations and uh, regards homosexual activity as intrinsically disordered. And that hasn't changed, and it's not going to change. Um, And when pushed recently on the question of blessings for gay marriages or gay unions, Pope Francis said, um, actually, I'm going to read you the text. If you give me half a second here, I'm going to pull it right up. Um, He says, the church has a very clear conception of marriage, an exclusive, stable, and indissoluble union between a man and a woman, naturally open to the begetting of children. Only this union is called a marriage. Um, uh, Other forms of union are realized only in a partial and analogous way, and they can't be called marriage. And for this reason, the church avoids any kind of rite or sacramental that could contradict this conviction or give the impression that something that is not marriage is recognized as marriage. Okay, so uh, Pope's position is clear. Marriage is marriage. Human sexuality is human sexuality. Nothing has changed in the doctrine. Um, there, there's always a question, a pastoral question, about what is the most prudent way to apply the church's teaching in the lived experience of persons. Um, and something that the Pope has talked about is that there are a lot of people in the world who are either nominally Catholic or not Catholic at all, but they're not actively practicing the Catholic faith, and they know the Church's teaching about human sexuality, and therefore they stay away. And they're not, they're not keen to listen. And so the Pope has encouraged pastors to think creatively about, well, how, how could we be pastorally present to people without compromising the Church's teaching uh, in a way that would enable us to manifest God's goodness to them in the hopes of creating an opening for them to become more fully incorporated into the Catholic faith, which would ultimately include making a full profession of faith and all that the Church teaches about morals or dogma. And, and the Pope's fairly open-ended on that question. Like, what is the best pastoral approach? Now, I, I mean, I grew up in a tradition before I was Catholic where, you know, the pastoral approach to this was, you know, let's, let's, let's uh, you know, jump up and down and shout, sin, 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 and away, 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 you evildoers. And that was thought to be the, the appropriate thing. Maybe give them medical care or some kind of human outreach, but, but certainly not any kind of pastoral care other than just the call to repentance, and that was it. Um, and obviously that was alienating for a lot of people. And so the Pope says, let's, let's think creatively about how we could do this. Now, this one, the Pope hasn't said this. I'm just pulling this out of the top of my head. Let me give you an example. Um, what would you what 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 should a pastor do if a couple that is involved in some kind of irregular union that the church does not approve asks a priest to come bless their home? Not to come bless their marriage, not to come bless their union, but to come bless their home, or maybe there are children dwelling there. Well, the Pope says in that kind of situation, okay, here's someone who is evidencing a desire for contact with the church and the grace of Christ in some capacity. Um, would it be appropriate, and this is an open question, to, to respond to that request for blessing positively? Could that be done in a way without giving scandal and that would not condone the immoral activity as such? Now, that's a thornier question, and I've, I know personally, I know priests that have come down on both sides of that issue. I know, pre, I know a single priest who's come down on both sides of the issue. Like he tried one approach and he thought that didn't work, and he tried the other approach, right? It's always a question of pastoral prudence. How can I bring the teaching of the church to this person in a way that will actually move them gradually towards full adherence to the Catholic faith? 
And I think that's the context in which you have to read uh, some of the Pope's recent remarks about ministry to, to persons who are, in one way or another, outside the sort of full expression of the Church's moral catechesis. Um, it's not a change in doctrine. It's an invitation to think creatively about pastoral prudence. Now, if you become a Catholic, are you obligated to agree with every pastoral policy that the Church advocates? No, certainly not. You have to agree to dogmas. You have to agree to the doctrinal, I mean, to the to the moral teaching, which, among other things, teaches the immorality of all sexual relations outside of marriage. You have to agree to that. Uh, but you're free to think, well, that was a well, that was a dumb move. I mean, throughout the history, the church has had no end of dumb moves. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've had popes that have declared war on neighboring city states and gotten involved in international policy in ways that were powerfully destructive, and you know, popes that have been personally immoral and you know all kinds of nonsense. You're not you're not obligated to condone everything that every pope ever ever says or every pope ever does. That's not what it means to be Catholic. In fact, the Code of Canon Law says that lay people have the right and sometimes the duty to speak up if they think their their pastors, including the pope, are uh, kind of, you know, on the wrong path. All right, Maria, we hope that helps a little bit. Uh, that also now frees up a line. Thanks for calling, and you can get in now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. This is called The Communion with Dr. David Anders. We're going to jump over to Facebook Live, Mickey watching. He says, uh, Dr. Anders, what happened to the other 11 tribes of Israel that are not Jews? The Israel spoken today is spoken as though it was made up solely of Jews. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, uh, the 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 north Israel had a had a civil war after the reign of King Solomon and it split into two nations the northern kingdom of Israel the southern kingdom of Judah and the the Assyrian Empire in the eighth century conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and led most of the population into servitude and then. Uh, uh, brought immigrants from other ethnicities into into northern Israel and settled them there. And so there was only a remnant of Yahwism, of worship of the God of the Old Testament, left what um, what the New Testament calls Samaritans were the were the remnants that were left over. But basically as a as a distinct ethnic tradition, th- those tribes of Israel were were lost and assimilated into other populations. and they it's not like they're hiding out in caves someplace. I mean, they're gone. They're not coming back. Um, and so the portion that remained was the kingdom of Judah. And so the word Jew is derived from that geographical location, Judea. Um, and so that's that's the living tradition that maintains continuity with the, with the, uh, uh, the traditions of the Old Testament that didn't become Christianity, namely Judaism. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mickey. We appreciate you watching us on Facebook. Uh, We're going to hold on to Marvin Mary till after the break, because that's coming up here shortly. But uh, we still have time for you. So as we are taking your questions, again, this show is really to help you. You don't have to be Catholic to call in. So any and all questions are welcome. Again, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. And you can also uh, call us, even if you're outside North America, at one 205 
888-382-2985. And uh, you can uh, jump in on Facebook or YouTube, leave your comments there. And then again, you can also uh, let us know through email, ctc at ewtn.com. So we got several calls coming in as we get set, and uh, we'll save our questions for after that. But uh, as you uh, think about this weekend, what are the questions that have been probing for you? And we want to put you at the top of the list so that you can go into your weekend knowing as much as possible to help you in growing in your faith and to understanding uh, your Catholic walk and your walk with God. So again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And uh, we look forward to taking your calls. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on EWTN Radio. Friday, and this is called the Communion with Dr. David Anders. I'm Ace McKay, and for Tom Price today, but we would love to take your calls. What are your questions about your faith or even Catholicism? You can call 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we go back to the phones, we want to give a shout out to our friends at Annunciation Radio. They would love to hear from you next week. They're going to be in their annual fall share starting Tuesday through the rest of the week, and they have five stations that go across northern Ohio. So uh, as you support EWT and Catholic Radio, be praying for Annunciation and keep them in your prayers as they go through the week. And then if you're listening to Annunciation Radio right now, make sure you call them next week uh, with your best gift of support. All right, let's go back to the phones as we check in with Marv. He's listening to Ave Maria Radio Online. Marv, what's your question for Dr. Anders? Yeah, the Catholic tradition or belief is that souls in purgatory can pray for others but cannot pray for themselves. My question is, what's the source of this tradition or belief? Where does that come from? I've been looking for yeah, it, and I just thanks. can't find any information I appreciate it. On it. So, in terms of the dogma of purgatory, what the Church teaches definitively is that purgatory exists, that it's a place of purification and penance, and that the souls in purgatory can benefit from the prayers of the faithful, and that the souls in purgatory cannot merit. Now, what I mean by merit is, you know, you do something that, that, um, that, uh, uh, receives a kind of recompense from God. So Jesus, for example, would say, if you give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, you will not lose your reward. Something that you could do that would bring a supererogatory reward from God. So they don't merit. The opportunity for merit is this life only. Um, to my way of looking at it, that's different from saying that the souls in purgatory can't pray for themselves. They, they, can, they, can, they can't merit... Uh, but in, by virtue of the fact that they're in the state of grace, it, it, it stands to reason it's almost a necessity that they have a life of prayer, right? And, and the life of prayer may very well include uh, acquiescing to the will of God regarding their own purification. Um, but in terms of your, the specifics of your question, where do Catholic beliefs about the fine details of purgatory come from? Basically, they're a matter of theological speculation. And so the only dogmas are that it exists, that they can't merit, that they can benefit from the prayers of the faithful. That's dogmatic. Anything else that we say about the condition of the souls in purgatory 
is really just a theologian's best guess based on the logic of the thing. And that's why you can have different opinions. And so the position that you articulated that they can't pray for themselves stated that blankly that would not be dogma and theologians could come to different points of view. I, I sort of dissent from that view myself. I think that they could pray for themselves in the sense that they are, they are affirming the will of God, um, they are communing with God in charity, uh, you know, they're not meriting, but, uh, but they certainly have a relationship with God. And prayer can take many forms, and, and just saying, God, I love you, is a prayer, you know, mm. that you can articulate. So, uh, but, but the answer to the question is a lot that is affirmed about purgatory is just a matter of speculation. Marv, thanks so much for your question, and now the freeing up a line at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. We're going to uh, hang out in Birmingham, Alabama. First-time caller, Mary, watching on YouTube. What's your question for Dr. Anders? Hey there. My question is, um, I wanted to know what the Catholic teachings um, of the proper uses of NFP were. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So, natural family planning is used when a couple has a, a a proportionate reason to plan or space the births of their children, so they can engage in marital relations um, in a way that's, in principle, open to life. But if there's a high likelihood of conception, they abstain from sexual relations because they don't think it's prudent to conceive at this particular moment. Uh, you know, sometimes people will challenge, well, isn't isn't natural family planning just contraception with a different under a different name? And the answer is no, because the fundamental difference is that uh, natural family planning is abstaining from sexual relations when you're likely to conceive, where contraception involves not abstaining. And there's a big difference between abstaining and not abstaining. All right, Mary, we hope that helps. Thanks so much for being a first-time caller. Another first-time caller in St. Louis, Missouri, Maria, uh, listening on Covet Radio Network. Maria, what's your question for Dr. Anders? Hello. Um, I um, am, have a question about the cohesion of my husband is involved with a Mason Shriner group, and I was wondering of the keeping of that with the Catholicism. Yeah, thanks. Is your husband a practicing Catholic? Um, we're kind of light Catholics, but we're moving on becoming Schmidian. Okay, all right. Yeah, so the, the Church's teaching is that a practicing Catholic is forbidden by canon law to be a member of a Masonic organization. So that's that's disallowed. He's not supposed to do that. And the, the reason is that historically— Masonry has been fairly explicit in its opposition to the Catholic Church and the Church's influence in, in public uh, society, and Masonry is predicated on the doctrine of indifferentism, which is contrary to the claims of Catholic dogma. So, um, you know, Masons are very proud to tell you usually that, hey, we believe in God, but it doesn't really matter which one. You know, as long as you believe in God, you can come here. Any kind, any kind of religion you want to be is fine, as long as you have a belief in the divinity. That's the sort of standard uh, Masonic line. Well, that's very different from Catholic confession of the doctrine of the Trinity. We think that it, it does kind of matter which God you believe in, and and it's not a matter of indifference. Um, and then again, you know, the so that that's against Catholic faith. And then again, that historic opposition between Masonry and Catholicism. Now, I recognize you probably recognize as well that. 
most individual Masons may not have a beef with the Catholic Church, and they may not even be aware of their organization's history of opposition to Catholicism. It's irrelevant. You know, it's kind of like saying, well, I won't use this analogy because it might offend, but you can think of all kinds of societies, all kinds of organizations that have a pernicious goal, and an individual member's ignorance of that pernicious goal uh, would not validate their membership, right? Because the organization as a whole has historically had this pernicious goal. That's what's the case with uh, masonry. All right, Maria, thanks so much for listening in St. Louis. Uh, as uh, that now frees up a line, if you'd like to call in, 833-288-EWTM. We're going to uh, stay with Ave Maria Radio in Michigan. Roseanne is listening, and uh, let's check in. What's your question for Dr. Anders? Um, hello, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I am interested in a, um, a biography about Martin Luther that does that isn't biased toward Protestantism and the Reformation. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I am very fond of the book Luther, Man Between God and the Devil by Heiko Obermann, H-E-I-K-O-O-B-E-R-M-A-N. And uh, Obermann was a Protestant. Uh, He was a fairly liberal Protestant, and he was not particularly confessionally um, committed. He's famous not for his confessional affiliation, but for his uh, really penetrating and critical scholarship. And what his book does is it situates Luther very firmly within his late medieval intellectual and religious context. And so reading Obermann's book, you really get a sense of the world that Luther came out of and the issues that motivated him and the characteristics of his own personality that motivated him. Um, And uh, I don't think anybody reading it would walk away and say either I love the Catholic Church or I love the Protestant Church or I hate either one of them. It really is a sort of critical, rational, objective, um, deeply studious biography of Luther that's nevertheless quite readable. So Obermann, Man Between God and the Devil, I recommend. Um, uh, There is a book, maybe hard to come by, may not be in print, um, by a Catholic scholar named Jared Wicks. He was a Jesuit called uh, Man Yearning for Grace. And it is a study, it's not a biography, but it's a study of Luther's religious and intellectual world up to the, the point of his break with, with the Catholic Church. So it, it mostly deals with Luther when he was still Catholic and really seeks to get inside his mind and to understand the kind of man that he was. Um, that's another really good one, but, uh, but probably harder to get a hold of. Um, but Obermann's book, Man Between God and the Devil, pretty approachable, pretty, and should be in print and easy to get in paperback. All right, good stuff, Roseanne. Hopefully that helps. Uh, as we now go to St. Louis, Missouri, checking in with David. Thanks for calling Call to Communion. What's your question for Dr. Anders? Hey, guys. Uh, appreciate you taking my call. First, uh, and really no question, just a comment. Uh, uh, so I had, uh, I played tennis with a group of gentlemen. Um, uh, one, one Catholic deacon and several Lutheran and uh, non-denominational players. Uh, I had a phone call today. Uh, one of one of my friends, uh, uh, Lutheran, uh, teaches uh, world history at uh, at his church, uh, and his ten-year-old students really thinks that 
Catholics are out to lunch. Uh, yep. That we don't, we don't believe in the Bible, and we pray to saints, and, and we do all these different yep. things. And so he called me today, and he said, Dave, he said, I just have to tell you something. He said, you have really impacted my life in the way that you live your life, uh, the way you live your faith. Uh, he said, I, I, I want to see if you can come one day and speak to my my kids and tell them why you want to be you are a Catholic and to try to let them know what what a Catholic is really all about uh, to dispel some of the myths that they have it it completely floored me uh, I was in tears I was very blown away very honored very humbled but I had the reason I called was I could not say yes to this if it wouldn't have been for, for especially you, Dr. Anders. Uh, I, you know, you have helped me define my faith more. Uh, you have a very practical way of explaining it and living your faith, and uh, it has really influenced me a lot. I've learned uh, a tremendous amount of information and things that that I can take and uh, you know, I'm a 12-step guy so I take what I like and I leave the rest and and what I hear you talk about has really influenced me and in, uh, in the formation of my faith and the only reason that I can say yes to this is because of uh, what I've learned from from you uh, by by far out of all the speakers on uh, EWTN that I've listened to. Uh, I, I I try not to miss your show, and that's that's tough because I'm a plumber and I'm, you know, man. I uh, really, in, in I, David, I really appreciate it. I, I thank you so much. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for your witness to your friend, and I and I certainly hope you take him up on his offer and you go speak to the to the ten year olds. I, I really do. And uh, man, I tell you, ten year olds can be absolutely brutal too. Mm-hmm. So you better mm-hmm. you better get ready for for full frontal assault. You know, that's absolutely right. I uh, I've taught a lot of classes and I've spoken to a lot of audiences in my life, um, and I don't think I've ever found any group that's harder to talk to than than uh, than ten year olds. You know, I remember once I was still Protestant. I was teaching a Sunday school class, team teaching with a fellow. His name was Lance, and I would teach one week, and Lance would teach one week, and. I come in one day, and one of the kids looks at me, and he says, are you teaching today or Lance? <laughs> and I said, Lance. And he looks at me and goes, good. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, why don't you tell me what you really think? Right. You know? But uh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad that that worked out for you. So thank you for calling. David, we appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. And, uh, of course, uh, I think the last time I was in a front of a bunch of 10-year-olds, I read Monster at the End of the Book. Like, that's about as deep as my conversation was with them so you know when when it works it works right uh let's check in with nate and uh he's listening uh first time caller louisville kentucky sirius xm nate thanks for calling call the communion what's your question for dr anders hey dr anders thank you for taking my call um the question is is i have a family member uh that is engaging in a relationship with a coptic orthodox individual um my family's pretty devout catholic obviously and uh I think that the, uh, my family member's friend, that they're engaging in this relationship, possibly a marriage down the road, they're pretty devout in their faith as well. I didn't know how this all plays out. I didn't know what our church's stance was on um, uh, a relationship 
possibly a marriage with somebody in a Coptic Orthodox background. Uh, I just want to get some guidance on that. Um, yeah, so the, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has published specific guidance on what to do in the case of uh, interfaith marriage between, between Catholics and Orthodox. Um, and they recommend, for example, that there be only one liturgical ceremony in which either or both priests are present. Uh, 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 and uh, anyway, the, the details are fairly com uh, complex, and there's quite a lot of them. Um, so there is, a, there is a procedure, and I would just direct you to the pastoral statement on Orthodox and Roman Catholic marriages published by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. All right. Thanks so much for calling, Nate. We appreciate it. Hope that helps. Uh, if you want to jump in on that line that's now available, you've got a little time. 833-288-3986. 833-288-EWTN. Before we go back to the phones, I want to let you know as you are uh, in the midst of your Veterans Day weekend, Dr. Doctor uh, airs on EWTN radio on Saturday afternoons, 2 Eastern. And tomorrow, Dr. Elliot Bedford from St. Vincent Health in Indianapolis is going to talk about real-life examples of ethical dilemmas that are coming up in Dr. Shroud's OBGYN practice. So uh, that's Saturday afternoons, 2 Eastern on EWTN Radio. The show is called Dr. Doctor. You can also find out on demand at EWTN.com slash radio. This is called The Communion with Dr. David Anders as we go to Florida, hanging out in the Sunshine State, listening on Sirius XM. Diane, what is your question for Dr. Anders? Hello, Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call. I, um, I'm a... Uh, I'm a long-time Catholic convert from the Methodist uh, tradition, and um, just uh, recently I've been noticing how many times I hear the word invite, how Jesus is, is inviting us to communion with him, he's inviting us to uh, whatever. And I remember when I was in church as a Methodist, I looked at the altar and I would always wonder what this means. It said, it was uh, engraved in the altar, do this in remembrance of me. And I always wondered, do what? Well, since I've become um, familiar with the Catholic Church and fell in love with it right away, uh, now I know what he meant, do this in remembrance of me. It's... it's uh, everything that the Catholic Church does, which culminates in Holy Eucharist, of course. Well, lately I've been hearing, noticing that people, uh, evangelists and of all different faiths, use the word Jesus invites us. Well, I'm thinking, um, where in the Bible does Jesus ever invite anybody? And I'm asking a question of you to see what you would add to this, or how would you, how would you um, parse this out? Because I feel that Jesus commands us. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I think it's more nuanced than that, and I, I think it's a false dichotomy to suggest that he invites or commands, and those are the only two options, and it's one or the other. You know, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus spoke to the crowds, he always and only spoke to them in parables. Always and only spoke to them in parables. And when asked by his disciples, why do you speak to the people in parables? His response was, and this is a paraphrase, but you can read the original in Matthew 13, so they will not understand. And you think, do what? 
Yeah, that's exactly what he said. He spoke to the people in parables to be intentionally obscure. What sense do we make of that? Well, here's how I understand that. If you look at the, 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 the genre of parable as a, as a form of Jewish discourse, which is, of course, older than Jesus, go back to Nathan and David, for example. David has assassinated Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan could have come in to David and said, King, you did wrong, you need to repent. But instead he tells the, the king a parable, and the king doesn't realize that the parable is being told against him. He says there was this man, he had a sheep, he was poor, his neighbor was rich, had all these sheep. Neighbor took his one sheep, killed it, fed it to his friends. David is incensed. He's, cut to, he's, 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 he's indignant at this injustice, and he says the man that did this must die. Only then does Nathan spring the trap and say, says, King, you're the man who did this. And then, and then David's cut to the heart, and he, he's brought to repentance. I think that's illustrative. I think the purpose of Jesus' parables was not to lay down a law, but to evoke a transformation of consciousness, to bring people to see their situation in a different light. That's very different from a command, right? If I can, if, you know, when people go to therapy, for example, um, most therapists fail to help their clients, and uh, psychologist David Burns says the reason why is because of client resistance. When, when their advice is presented you know, in propositional form, you should do this, you should do that, people tend, to, whatever the advice is, good or bad, people tend to resist that kind of thing. And so effective therapy, like many forms of effective teaching, evokes more than instructs because you're not going to get anywhere unless you can actually get in there and move somebody's heart. Jesus also provokes. He would, he would entice and he would evoke, but he was also provoke. Like when he goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath and there's a man with a withered hand and Jesus puts the guy up in front of the whole synagogue and says, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to heal or to leave this man sick? Open-ended question, forcing the people to take a position. They won't, of course. No one wants to go on record. And so then Jesus just heals the man. Mm-hmm. Now, that was teaching— but it didn't come in the form of a command. It came in the form of a provocation. Um, Christ's own lived example, again, was teaching. He, he showed us what it looked like to fast, to pray, to be in communion with the Father, to, to eat with sinners and tax collectors, and ultimately to lay his life down in crucifixion. But all that is evocative, provocative. It's not directly hortatory. There were times when Jesus would directly confront, but there were many more times that he didn't. And of course, often when he did directly confront, the result was that people walked away from him. And so I think as a pedagogue, Jesus's methodology was more subtle than simply, you know, to command, and he does, he does invite, you know, he, he come to you all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's an invitation to discipleship. Uh, so I think, I think he does all of these things. I think he was a master teacher whose goal was not vindication, but the conversion of those uh, to whom he was ministering. Diane, thanks for your question. We appreciate it. Let's jump over to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and check in with Mark listening on Holy Family Radio. Mark, what's your question for Dr. Anders? 
Yes, Dr. Anders, I spoke to a loving non-Catholic Christian, and um, uh, they were uh, they see the Bible as kind of a history book. And uh, I had mentioned that Jesus established the Church on the Rock of Peter and the Magisterium and so forth. And uh, then it was mentioned to me that, well, there was no Magisterium, and it didn't start until the time of Constantine, uh, came out of the Council of Nicaea, and Constantine was the became the ruling authority of the church, Orthodox Church, and then people entered the church uh, through uh, through Constantine because of economic benefit. Um, could you give me some perspective on that, what that translates to a little bit? Yeah, that's insane, honestly. And that somebody who makes that claim has has absolutely no knowledge whatsoever at all of Christian history. And I'm not saying this as a Catholic. I mean, go read skeptic Bart Ehrman's uh, history text on the origins of Christianity. I mean, definitely not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. The man's an atheist. That's not the account that he gives, right? I mean, like, no competent historian who's looked at the data would say something as insane Hmm. as the teaching office of the Church didn't begin to exist until the time of Constantine. That's nuts, right? So the, the, the earliest Christian literature that we have outside the New Testament uh, a great deal of it comes from Catholic bishops exercising magisterial authority. Uh, the the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, very early second century, for example, are a series of moral and doctrinal instructions to Christians on what to do and not do, uh, with with specific commendations of episcopal authority as a function of magisterial authority given by Christ. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, a later 2nd century bishop in Lyon, um, who absolutely in an exercise of, uh, of episcopal authority writes his, his doctrinal treatises and, uh, and specifically states in Book 3 that, that doctrinal controversy is to be decided with reference to the consensus of the Church of Rome on account of the eminence of her founders, Peter and Paul. And then he gives you the succession of bishops down from uh, down from Peter to the the current Pope in his own day. I mean, I could we could I can sit here and list doctrinal and episcopal and papal authorities ad nauseum uh, up into you know before Constantine had ever heard of Christianity. And of course, when Constantine did become a Christian and the Council of Nicaea was convoked, who do you think came to the Council of Nicaea? It was Catholic bishops that had been Catholic bishops long before Constantine was on the was on the agenda. So I mean, it's just. This just gross historical ignorance to make a claim like that. Thanks, Mark. We appreciate you listening to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, of course, that wraps up our time together. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir, as always. Thanks, Ace. Have a great weekend. Of course, we want to wish you the same, and thank you to our veterans. Uh, this is called the Communion. We'll be back with you on Monday and uh, hopefully have an entire restful weekend. Remember, you can uh, email your questions over the weekend, ctc at ewtn.com. Remember to let God define who you are. We'll see you next time. <laughs>